0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A man is heavily weighed upon by dark thoughts. Fears, in fact, of going under the knife. Taking on a surgery to his side to remove something from him that warrants removal. This man's thoughts, though, are plagued with depression, suicidal thoughts even, and thoughts of darkness. What we experience in today's tale are his thoughts. How he progressed through those dark thoughts and what begins to change him. Going under the knife, cutting away darkness, and so much more. Mates, join me in today's tale for a more intense and specifically more than usual metaphysical story style. This episode may or may not be for you, but nonetheless, something worth exploring and giving a shot. I don't do these kinds of stories often, but today's episode is one such tale. Because I love variety, listen closely, pay attention, and follow along to the tale of Under the Knife, written in 1898. Enjoy. What What if if I I die die under it? it? The thought reoccurred again and again as I walked home from Haddon's. It was a purely personal question. I was spared the deep anxieties of a married man. And I knew there were few of my intimate friends but would find my death troublesome chiefly on account of the duty of regret. I was surprised indeed. And perhaps a little humiliated. As I turned the matter over to think how few could possibly exceed the conventional requirement, things came before me stripped of glamour in a clear, dry light during that walk from Haddon's house over Primrose Hill. There were the friends of my youth. I perceived now that our affection was a tradition, which we foregathered rather laboriously to maintain. There were the rivals and helpers of my later career, I suppose i'd been cold-blooded or undemonstrative one perhaps implies the other it may be that even the capacity for friendship is a question of physique there had been a time in my own life where i had grieved bitterly enough at the loss of a friend but as i walked home that afternoon the emotional side of my imagination was dormant i could not pity myself nor feel sorry for my friends nor conceive of them as grieving for me. I was interested in this deadness of my emotional nature, no doubt a concomitant of my stagnating physiology, and my thoughts wandered off along the line it suggested. Once before, in my hot youth, I had suffered a sudden loss of blood and had been within an ace of death. I remembered now that my affections as well as my passions had drained out of me leaving scarce anything but a tranquil resignation, and the faintest dreg of self-pity. It had been WEEKS before the old ambitions and tenderness, and all the complex moral interplay of a man had reasserted themselves. It occurred to me that the real meaning of this numbness might be a gradual slipping away from the pleasure-pain guidance of the animal man. It has been proven, I take it. As thoroughly as anything can be proven in this world, that the higher emotions, the moral feelings, even the subtle tenderness of love, are evolved from the elemental desires and fears of the simple animal. They are the harness in which man's mental freedom goes. And it may be that, as death overshadows us, as our possibility of acting diminishes, this complex growth of balanced impulse, propensity, and aversion, whose interplay inspires our acts, goes with it. Leaving what? I was suddenly brought back to reality by an imminent collision with the Butcher Boy's train. I found that I was crossing the bridge over the Regent Park Canal, which runs parallel with the bridge in the zoological gardens. The boy in blue had been looking over his shoulder at a black barge, advancing slowly, towed by a gaunt white horse. In the gardens, a nurse was leading three happy little children over the bridge. The trees were bright green. The spring hopefulness was still unstained by the dusts of summer. The sky and the water was bright and clear. But broken by long waves, by quivering bands of black as the barge drove through, the breeze was stirring, but it did not stir me, as the spring breeze used to do. Was this dullness of feeling in itself... And anticipation. It was curious that I could reason and follow out a network of suggestions as clearly as ever, so at least it seemed to me. It was my calmness rather than dullness that was coming upon me. Was there any ground for the belief in the presentiment of death? Did a man near to death begin instinctively to withdraw himself from the meshes of matter and sense, even before the cold hand was laid upon his? I felt strangely isolated, isolated without regret, isolated without regret, from the life and existence about me, the children playing in the sun and gathering strength and experience for the business of life, the park keeper gossiping with a nursemaid, the nursing mother, the younger couple intent upon each other as they passed me, the trees by the wayside spreading new pleading leaves to the sunlight the stir in their branches. I had been part of it all, but I had nearly done with it now. Some way down the broad walk, I perceived that I was tired and that my feet were heavy. It was hot that afternoon and I turned aside and sat down on one of the green chairs that lined the way. In a minute, I had dozed into a dream and the tide of my thoughts washed up a vision of the resurrection. I was still sitting in the chair, But I thought myself actually dead, withered, tattered, dried, one eye, I saw, pecked out by birds. Awake! cried a voice, and incontently the dust of the path and the mould under the grass became insurgent. I had never before thought of Regent's Park as a cemetery. But now, through the trees, stretching as far as I could see, I beheld a flat plain of writhing graves, and healing tombstones. There seemed to be some trouble. The rising dead appeared to stifle as they struggled upward. They bled in their struggles. The red flesh was tattered away from the white bones. Awake! "Awake." cried a voice, but I determined I would not rise to such horrors. Awake! "Awake." They would not let me alone. Wake up! said an angry voice, a cockney angel. The man who sells the tickets was shaking me, demanding my penny. I paid my penny, pocketed my ticket, yawned, stretched my legs, and feeling now rather less torpid, got up and walked along to Langham Place. I speedily lost myself again in a shifting maze of thoughts about death. Going across Marleybone Road, in that crescent at the end of Langham Place, I had the narrowest escape from the shaft of a cab and went on my way with a palpitating heart and a bruised shoulder. It struck me that it would have been curious if my meditations on my death, on the morrow, had led to my death that day. But I will not weary you with more of my experience of that day and the next. I knew more and more, certainly, that I should die under the operation. At times I think I was inclined to pose to myself. The doctors were coming at eleven, and I did not get up. It seemed scarce worthwhile to trouble about washing and dressing, and, though I read my newspapers and the letters that came by the first post, I did not find them very interesting. There was a friendly note from Addison, my old school friend, calling my attention to two discrepancies and a printer's error in my new book, with one from Landridge venting some vexation over Minton. The rest were business communications. I breakfasted in bed. The glow of pain at my side seemed more massive. I knew it was pain, and yet, if you can understand, I did not find it very painful. I had been awake and hot and thirsty in the night, but in the morning, the bed felt comfortable. In the night time, I had lain thinking of things that were past. In the morning, I dozed over the question of immortality. Haddon came, punctual to the minute with a neat black bag. A mowbray soon followed. Their arrival stirred me up a little. I began to take a more personal interest in the proceedings. Haddon moved the little octagonal table close to the bedside, and with his broad black back to me began taking things out of his bag. I heard the little click of steel upon steel. My imagination, I found, was not altogether stagnant. Will you hurt me much? I said in an offhand tone. Not a bit, Haddon answered over his shoulder. We shall chloroform you. Your heart's as sound as a bell. And as he spoke at a whiff of the pungent sweetness of the anesthetic. They stretched me out, with the convenient exposure of my side and almost before I realized what was happening, the chloroform was being administered. It stings the nostrils and... There is a suffocating sensation at first. I knew I should die. That this was the end of consciousness for me. And suddenly I felt that I was not prepared for death. I had a vague sense of a duty overlooked. I knew not what. What was it I had not done? I could think of nothing more to do, nothing desirable left in life, and yet I had the strangest disinclination to death. And the physical sensation was painfully oppressive. Of course, the doctors did not know they were going to kill me. Possibly I struggled. Then I fell motionless and a great silence, a monstrous silence, and an impenetrable blackness came upon me. There must have been an interval of absolute unconsciousness, seconds or minutes. Then with a chilly, unemotional clearness, I perceived that I was not yet dead. I was still in my body. But all the multitudinous sensations that come sweeping from it to make up the background of consciousness had gone, leaving me free of it all. No, not free of it all. For as yet something still held me to the poor stark flesh upon the bed, held me, yet not so closely that I did not feel myself external to it, independent of it, straining away from it. I do not think I saw, I do not think I heard, but I perceived all that was going on, And it was as if I both heard and saw Haddon was bending over me, Mowbray behind me, the scalpel. It was a large scalpel. Was cutting my flesh at the side under the flying ribs. It was interesting to see myself cut like cheese without a pang, without even a qualm. The interest was much of quality with that one might feel in a game of chess between strangers. Haddon's face was firm and his hand steady, but I was surprised to perceive, how I know now, that he was feeling the gravest doubt as to his own wisdom in the conduct of his operation. Mowbray's thoughts too, I could see. He was thinking that Haddon's manner showed too much of the specialist. New suggestions came up like bubbles through a stream of frothing meditation. A burst, one after another, in the little bright spot of his consciousness, He could not help noticing and admiring Haddon's swift dexterity, in spite of his envious quality and his disposition to detract. I saw my liver exposed. I was puzzled at my own condition. I did not feel that I was dead, but I was different in some way from my living self. The great depression that had weighed on me for a year or more and colored all my thoughts was gone. I perceived and thought without any emotional tint at all. I wondered if everyone perceived things in this way under chloroform and forgot it again when he came out of it. It would be inconvenient to look into some heads and not forget. Although I did not think that I was dead, I still perceived quite clearly that I was soon to die. This brought me back again to Haddon's proceedings. I looked into his mind, I saw that he was afraid of cutting a branch of the portal vein. My attention was distracted from details by the curious changes going on in his mind. His consciousness was like the quivering little spot of light, which is thrown by the mirror of a galvanometer. His thoughts ran under it like a stream, some through the focus bright and distinct, some shadowy in the half-light of the edge. Just now, the little glow was steady. But the least movement of malbury's part thoughts their slightest sound from outside even a faint difference in the slow movement of the living flesh he was cutting set the light spot shivering and spinning a new sense impression came rushing up through the flow of thought and lo the light spot jerked away towards it swifter than a frightened fish It was wonderful to think that upon that unstable, pitiful thing depended all the complex motions of the man, that for the next five minutes, therefore, my life hung upon its movements. And he was growing more and more nervous in his work. It was as if a little picture of a cut vein grew brighter, and struggled to oust from his brain another picture of a cut falling short of the mark. He was afraid. His dread of cutting too little was battling with his dread of cutting too far. Then, suddenly, like an escape of water from under a lock gate, a great uprush of horrible realisation set, all his thoughts swirling, and simultaneously, I perceived that the vein was cut. He started back with a hoarse exclamation, and I saw the brown-purple blood gather in a swift bead and run, trickling he was horrified. He pitched the red-stained scalpel onto the octagonal table, and instantly both doctors flung themselves upon me, making hasty and ill-conceived efforts to remedy the disaster. Ice! said Malbury, gasping. But I knew that I was killed, though my body still clung to me. I will not describe their belated endeavours to save me though I perceived every detail My perceptions were sharper and swifter than they had ever been in life. My thoughts rushed through my mind with incredible swiftness, but with perfect definition. I can only compare their crowded clarity to the effects of a reasonable dose of opium. In a moment, it would all be over, and I should be free. I knew I was immortal, but what would happen, I did not know. Should I drift off presently like a puff of smoke from a gun? in some kind of half-material body, an attenuated version of my material self? Should I find myself suddenly among the innumerable hosts of the dead, and know the world about me, for the phantasmagoria it had always seemed? Should I drift to some spiritualistic seance, and there make foolish, incomprehensible attempts to affect a pure blind medium? It was a state of unemotional curiosity, of colorless expectation. And then I realized a growing stress upon me, a feeling as though some huge human magnet was drawing me upward out of my body. The stress grew and grew. I seemed an atom for which monstrous forces were fighting. For one brief, terrible moment, sensation came back to me. That feeling of falling headlong, which comes in nightmares, that feeling a thousand times intensified That and a black horror swept across my thought in a torrent. Then the two doctors, the naked body with its cut side, the little room, swept away from under me and vanished, as a speck of foam vanishes down an eddy. I was in mid-air. Far below was the west end of London, receding rapidly, for I seemed to be flying swiftly upward. And as it receded passing westward like a panorama. I could see through the faint haze of smoke the innumerable roofs, chimney set, the narrow roadways stifled with people and conveyances, the little specks of squares, and the church steeples like thorns sticking out of the fabric. But it spun away as the earth rotated on its axis, and in a few seconds, as it seemed, I was over the scattered clumps of town about Ealing, the Little Thames a thread of blue to the south, and the Chiltern Hills, and the North Downs, coming up like the rim of a basin, far away and faint with haze. Up I rushed, and at first I had not the faintest conception of what this headlong upward rush could mean. Every moment the circle of scenery beneath me grew wider and wider, and the details of town and field, of hill and valley got more and more hazy, and pale and indistinct, A luminous grey was mingled more and more with the blue of the hills and the green of the open meadows, and a little patch of cloud, low and far to the west, shone ever more dazzlingly white. Above, as the veil of atmosphere between myself and outer space grew thinner, the sky, which had been a fair springtime blue at first, grew deeper, and richer in colour, passing steadily through the intervening shades, until presently it was as dark as the blue sky of midnight and presently as black as the blackness of a frosty starlight, and at last as black as no blackness I had ever beheld. At first one star, and then many, and at last an innumerable host broke out upon the sky, more stars than any one has ever seen from the face of earth. For the blueness of the sky is the light of the sun, and stars sifting and spread abroad blindingly. There is diffused light even in the darker skies of winter, and we did not see their light by day, because of the dazzling irradiation of the sun. But now I saw things, I know not how, assuredly with no mortal eyes, and that defect of bedazzlement blinded me no longer. The sun was incredibly strange and wonderful. The body of it was a disk of blinding white light, not yellowish as it seems to those who live upon the earth, but livid white all streaked with scarlet streaks and rimmed about with a fringe of writhing tongues of red fire. And shooting halfway across the heavens from either side of it and brighter than the Milky Way were two pinions of silver white making it look more like those winged globes I have seen in Egyptian sculpture than anything else I can remember upon Earth. These I knew for the solar corona though I'd never seen anything of it but a picture during the days of my earthly life. When my attention came back to the earth again, I saw that it had fallen very far away from me. Field and town were long since indistinguishable, and all the varied hues of the country were merging into a uniform bright grey, broken only by the brilliant white of the clouds that lay scattered in fluorescent masses over Ireland and the west of England. For now, I could see the outlines of the north of France and Ireland and all this island of Britain. Save where Scotland passed over the horizon to the north, or where the coast was blurred or obliterated by cloud. The sea was a dull grey and darker than the land, and the whole panorama was rotating slowly towards the east. All this happened so swiftly that, until I was some thousand miles or so from the earth, I had no thought for myself, but now I perceived I had neither hands nor feet parts nor organs, and that I felt neither alarm nor pain. All about me, I perceived that the vacancy, for I had already left the air behind, was cold beyond the imagination of man, but it troubled me not. The sun's rays shot through the void, powerless to light or heat, until they should strike on matter in their course. I saw things with a sense of self-forgetfulness, even as if I were God. And now below there, rushing away from me, countless miles in a second. Where a little dark spot on the grey marked the position of London, two doctors were struggling to restore life to the poor hacked and outsworn shell I had abandoned. I felt, then, such release, such serenity, as I can compare to no earthly delight I have ever known. It was only after I had perceived all these things that the meaning of that headlong rush of the earth grew in comprehension. Yet it was so simple, so obvious, that I was amazed at my never anticipating the thing that was happening to me. I had, suddenly, been cut adrift from matter. All that was material of me was there upon the Earth, whirling away through space. Held to the Earth by gravitation, partaking of the Earth's inertia, moving in its wreath of epicycles round the Sun, and with the Sun and their planets on their vast march through space but the immaterial has no inertia, feels nothing of the pull of matter for matter. Where it parts from its garment of flesh, there it remains, so far as space concerns it any longer, immovable in space. I was not leaving the Earth, the Earth was leaving me, and not only the Earth, but the whole solar system was streaming past, and about me in space, invisible to me, Scattered in the wake of the earth upon its journey, there must be an innumerable multitude of souls, stripped like myself of the material, stripped like myself of the passions of the individual and the generous emotions of the gregarious brute. Naked intelligences, things of newborn wonder and thought, marvelling at the strange release that had suddenly come on them. As I receded faster and faster from the strange white sun in the black heavens, and from the broad and shining earth upon which my being had begun, I seemed to grow. In some incredible manner, vast as regards this world I had left, vast as regards the moment and period of a human life, very soon I saw the full circle of the earth, slightly gibbous, like the moon when she nears, full and great, and the silvery shape of the America was now in the noonday blaze, wherein, as it seemed, little England had been basking for a few minutes ago. At first the earth was large and shone in the heavens, filling a great part of them. But every moment she grew smaller and more distant. And as she shrunk, the broad moon in its third quarter crept into view over the rim of her disc. I looked for the constellations, only that part of Eris directly behind the sun and the lion, which the earth covered, were hidden. I recognized the torturous tattered band of the Milky Way, with Vega, very bright between sun and earth, and Sirius, and Orion shone splendidly against the unfathomable blackness in the opposite quarter of the heavens. The pole star was overhead, and the great bear hung over the circle of the earth, and away beneath and beyond the shining corona of the sun were strange groupings of stars I had never seen in my life notably a dagger-shaped group that I knew for the Southern Cross. All these were no larger than when they had shone on Earth, but the little stars that one scarce sees shone now as brightly as the first magnitude had done, while the larger worlds were points of indescribable glory and colour. Albaran was a spot of blood-red fire, and Sirius condensed the light of a world of sapphires, and they shone steadily. They did not scintillate. They were calmly glorious. My impressions had an andamantite hardness and brightness. There was no blurring softness, no atmosphere, nothing but infinite darkness set with the myriads of these acute and brilliant points and specks of light. Presently, when I looked again, the little earth seemed no bigger than the sun, and it dwindled and turned as I looked, until in a second space, as it seemed to me, it was half. And so it went on swiftly dwindling. Far away, in the opposite direction, a little pinkish-pinned head of light, shining steadily, was the planet Mars. I swam motionless in vacancy, and without a trace of terror or astonishment, watched the speck of cosmic dust we call the world fall away from me. Presently it dawned upon me that my sense of duration had changed, That my mind was moving not faster, but infinitely slower. That between each separate impression, there was a period of many days. The moon spun once round the Earth, as I noted this, and I perceived clearly the motion of Mars in his orbit. Moreover, it appeared as if the time between thought and thought grew steadily greater. Until at last, a thousand years was but a moment in my perception. At first, the constellations had shone motionlessly, Against the black background of infinite space. But presently it seemed as though the group of stars, about Hercules and the Scorpion, was contracting, while Orion and Aldebaran and their neighbors were scattering apart. Flashing suddenly out of the darkness, there came a flying multitude of particles of rock, glittering like dust specks in the sunbeam and encompassed in a faintly luminous haze. They swirled all about me and vanished again in a twinkling far behind. And then I saw that a bright spot of light that shone a little to one side of my path was growing very rapidly larger, and perceived that it was the planet Saturn rushing towards me. Larger and larger it grew, swallowing up the heavens behind it, and hiding behind it a fresh multitude of stars. I perceived its flattened whirling body, its disc-like belt, and seven of its little satellites. It grew and grew till it towered enormous, And then I plunged amid a streaming multitude of clashing stones and dancing dust particles and gas eddies, and saw for a moment the mighty triple belt, like three concentric arches of moonlight above me, its shadow black on the boiling tumult below. These things happen in one-tenth of the time it takes to tell of them. The planet went by like a FLASH of lightning. For a few seconds it blotted out the sun, and there and then became a mere black dwindling winged patch against the light. The Earth, the mother-mote of my being, I could no longer see. So with a stately swiftness in the profoundest silence, so with a stately swiftness in the profoundest silence, the solar system fell from me, as it had been a garment. Until the sun was a mere star amidst the multitude of stars, with its eddy of planets' specks lost in the confused glittering of the remoter light. I was no longer a denizen of the solar system. I had come to the outer universe. I seemed to grasp and comprehend the whole world of matter. Even more swiftly, the stars close in about the spot where Antares and Vega had vanished into a luminous haze until that part of the sky had the semblance of a whirling mass of nebula. And ever before me yawned vaster gaps of vacant blackness, and the stars shone fewer and fewer, It seemed as if I moved towards a point between Orion's belt and sword, and the void about the region opened faster and faster every second, an incredible gulf of nothingness into which I was falling. Faster and even faster the universe rushed by, a hurry of whirling moat at last, speeding silently into the void, stars glowing brighter and brighter with their circling planets catching the light in a ghostly fashion as I neared them, Shone out and vanished again, into inexistence, faint comets, clusters of meteorites, winking specks of matter, eddying light points whizzed past. Some perhaps a hundred million of miles or so from me at most, few nearer, travelling with unimaginable rapidity, shooting constellations, momentary darts of fire through the black night. More than anything else, it was like a dusty drought. Sunbeam lit. Broader and wider and deeper grew the starless space, the vacant beyond, into which I was being drawn. At last, a quarter of the heavens was black and blank, and the whole headlong rush of stellar universe closed in behind me, like a veil of light that is gathered together. It drove away from me like a monstrous jack-o'-lantern, driven by the wind, I had come out into the wilderness of space. Even the vacant blackness grew broader, until the hosts of the stars seemed only like a swarm of fiery specks hurrying away from me, inconceivably remote, and the darkness, the nothingness, and emptiness was about me on every side. Soon, the little universe of matter, the cage of points in which I had begun to be, was dwindling. Now to a whirling disk of luminous glittering, and now to one minute disk of hazy light. In a little while I would shrink to a point, and at last would vanish altogether. Suddenly, feeling came back to me, feeling in the shape of overwhelming terror. Such a dread of those dark vastitudes as no words can describe. A passionate resurgence of sympathy and social desire. Were there other souls... Invisible to me, as I to them, about me in the blackness? Or was I indeed, even as I felt, alone? Had I passed out of being into something that was nothing being nor not being? The covering of the body, the covering of matter, had been torn from me. And the hallucinations of companionship and security? Everything was black and silent. I had ceased to be. I was nothing. There was nothing save only that infinitesimal dot of light that dwindled in the gulf. I strained myself to hear and see, and for a while, there was naught but infinite silence, intolerable darkness, horror, and despair. Then I saw that about the spot of light into which the whole world of matter had shrunk, there was a faint glow, and in a band on either side of that darkness was not absolute. I watched it for ages as it seemed to me, and through the long waiting, the haze grew imperceptibly more distinct. And then about the band appeared an irregular cloud of the faintest, palest brown. I felt a passionate impatience, but the things grew brighter, so slowly that the scarce seemed to change. What was unfolding itself? What was this strange, reddish dawn in the interminable night of space? The cloud's shape was grotesque, It seemed to be looped along its lower side into four projecting masses, and, above, it ended up in a straight line. What phantom was it? I felt assured. I had seen that figure before, but I could not think what, nor where, nor when it was. Then the realization rushed upon me. It was a clenched hand! I was alone in space, alone with this huge, shadowy hand upon which the whole universe of matter lay like an unconsidered speck of dust, it seemed as though I watched it through vast periods of time. On the forefinger glittered a ring, and the universe from which I had come was but a spot of light upon the ring's curvature. And the thing that the hand gripped had the likeness of a black rod. Through a long eternity I watched the hand, with the ring and the rod marvelling and fearing and waiting helplessly on what might follow. It seems as though nothing should follow, as if I should watch forever. Seeing only the hand and the thing it held, and understanding nothing of its import, was the whole universe but a refracting speck upon some greater being? Were our worlds but the atoms of another universe, and those again of another, and so on through an endless progression? And what was I? Was I indeed immaterial? A vague persuasion of a body gathering about me came into my suspense, the abysmal darkness about the hand filled with impalpable suggestions with uncertain fluctuating shapes. Then suddenly came a sound, like the sound of a tolling bell, faint as if infinitely far, muffled as the herd through thick swathings of darkness, a deep vibrating resonance with vast gulfs of silence between each stroke, and the hand appeared to tighten on the rod, And I saw, far above the hand, towards the apex of darkness, a circle of dim phosphorescence, a ghostly sphere whence these sounds came throbbing, and at the last stroke the hand vanished, for the hour had come, and I heard a noise of many waters. But the black rod remained, as a great band across the sky. And then a voice, which seemed to run to the utmost parts of space, spoke, saying, There will be no more pain. At that an almost intolerable gladness, and radiance rushed in upon me, and I saw the circle shining white and bright, and the rod black and shining, and many other things else distinct and clear, and the circle was the face of the clock and the rod the rail of my bed. Haddon was standing at the foot against the rail, with the small pair of scissors on his fingers, and the hands of my clock on the mantle over his shoulder were clasped together. Over the hour of twelve, Malbury was washing something in a basin at the octagonal table, and at my side I felt a subdued feeling that could scarce be spoken of as pain. The operation had not killed me, and I perceived, suddenly, that the dull melancholy of half a year was lifted from my mind. Mates, what did you think? I know, I know, it's a lot heavier than my usual readings and definitely a lot wordier. For those unsure what this tale was about, it was an exploratory thought piece of a person's perspective on life and death. Understanding of those principles, what a person knows and values in their life, the immediacy of living, or the fact that there is so much in the universe that is so fantastic and so unknown that you simply cannot live without it impacting you in some way. Or at least until you realize there's so much in the universe unknown. Of course, this is my own interpretation, but I found it a great thought piece. And if I can summarize this tale neatly, one may walk the line of death to its precipice, to only then appreciate life in all its true value. Let me know what you think. Now mates, my favorite part of the podcast, believe it or not, my thank yous. Firstly, a massive thank you to you for listening, and a huge thank you of course, my amazing patreons. First up, my jaw dropping top tier supporter, Megalicious Maya. Mate, I always say this and I mean it, the show wouldn't be the same without your support. Thank you so much for being as awesome as you are and supporting at this tier. I'm finally finding time to use more of the support you've sent my way to hone my skills and improve on audio quality. And you'll all hear this as a result, thanks to Maya. Thank you mate for your lovely email and thank you as always for supporting me. My White Tea Warlord Lizasaurus Rex, who has infinite patience. Mate, thank you for your constant support and patience. I've been using the voice bot today to clear out background noise and focus on vocal clarity. I think I'm getting closer and closer mate to nailing it 100%. Either way, thank you so much for your support buddy. You are awesome. And of course, the lifeblood of this show, my Earl Grey enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One, and Divided by Zero. Have a fantastic Wednesday night. And if you enjoy this podcast, send me to someone you know and spread the word. It's people like you that I want to have listening, people that love storytelling. It's as simple as that. All right, you lovelies. Stay awesome, which is easy for you lot. And as always, till next we meet.